0: Hello, and welcome to April's Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Tilt, how are you doing? Adequately. Well, you can't say fairer than that. However, it's not just yourself and myself today, is it? Because we've got a guest from inside the network. We're going to get a network together. The Podnose Network, that is. Because we have the host of Cinema Limbo. Jeremy, how are you doing? I'm very
1: well, thanks, chaps.
0: So, yeah, so we're all... Here, we're all gathered here today. So, what is it that's brought us all together? What could possibly be of interest to both the Jaffa cakes and Cinema Limbo worlds that it would cause them to collide like a Venn diagram? It's probably going to be something. I mean, you dropped a hint, didn't you, last time, Tilt? You dropped a hint that it was going to be sort of Doctor Who related, but not quite.
2: No, I actually stated outright last time what we were doing. Did you? Yes, yes I did. And it is all based around the fact that you're a massive sellout. And after Doctor Who and the Gunfighters became our most downloaded podcast, you go, we've got to do more Doctor Who, and it's like, we can't do more Doctor Who. Other people want to do Doctor Who-based podcasts, we can't steal their thunder, especially as there's only so much we can say.
0: Now let me just address this, just now, this idea that I'm a massive sellout. The answer is, yes. Yes I am. And I'm available for hire, if people want to sponsor the podcast, if they just want to send me free stuff, great. I mean, just chuck us loads of stuff, promotional gear, whatever. I'm all for it. So
2: I wanted to work a weird angle off of Doctor Who because, as I'd mentioned previously, I'd rewatched a huge chunk of 63 to 89 Doctor Who with my wife, and the reason I'd done that is because we'd watched the Pathfinders in Space trilogy. She hadn't wanted to watch Doctor Who. She'd expressed a curiosity in Pathfinders in Space, and by the end of it, she was regretting the fact that there wasn't more of it to watch. And it's like, there's something a bit like that that we could watch. So it's a way of working a weird angle, doing a little bit of Lost Britain, because I think there is the new Elizabethan approach to science fiction. I want to talk about that. That strange optimism, but it's very science it's very educational. Maybe slightly patrician.
1: Are you sure it's educational or just that it thinks it's educational? Because there's quite a it lot. taught me that, a lesson. There's quite a lot that they state about Venus that I'm not sure is backed up <laughs> by evidence, such as the. Well, presence that's the of...
2: thing. It's the decay of the original idea over the three series. And that's something else that interests me.
1: That move from science fiction to science fantasy. The series itself sells out. And it becomes more ratings chasing in a way, I think. And it goes from relatively serious educational science fiction series to having um, people being attacked by dinosaurs and running around <laughs> with cavemen.
0: <laughs> well, we're getting ahead of ourselves here because at first it was it was a nice little sort of semi-educational programme, wasn't it? And I didn't actually prefer the first couple of stories.
2: Probably worth saying before we go any further that... This will be a spoiler-filled show. There are dramatic twists in the Pathfinder saga, and we will spoil every single one of them.
0: Well, first of all, before we start, actually, Jeremy, what's, what's your interest in all things And Are you a big Who fan yourself?
1: I'm a very big Doctor Who fan, yeah. I've um, been a fan since the age of about 10. I lived in Germany when I was little, and it was just when the Sylvester McCoy stories were running on TV over there. So I kind of got into Doctor Who through that direction and then when we came back to the uk i started buying doctor who magazine and the novelizations and i'm a huge fan to this day but i'd never seen pathfinders before i'd heard about it and i had a vague idea of what it was about but i hadn't seen it given that it's only recently been released commercially at all it isn't too surprising but i'd seen quite a much and i liked that so i thought well this is probably going to be sort of the missing link between the two going from sort of serious science fiction to more family adventure this will be half and half And it does occupy that middle ground, I think, very neatly.
0: Okay, so where do we start with this? Because unusually, we've got a situation where, well, I suppose if we were going to review Dear Mother Love Albert, we'd be in a similar situation. Because Till, the first story is missing.
2: Target Luna.
0: So what's the story then? What is this Target Luna? Why can't we watch it? And yet, how do you know so much about it?
2: What do you mean, why can't we watch it? It was made in the spring of 1960. In television terms, that is practically prehistoric. I think tele-recordings might have been made. I think it was for sale for a while, but it hasn't survived all the changes of ownership that have happened over the years. It's quite interesting. It starts to me, I don't know how they play it. I assume they play it bright and breezy. But the whole thing is is that well, Mrs. Wedgwood wants shot of her three children, so she's sending them up to stay with their father ...on the rocket laboratory on bucking Island... ...and she's going off to Cornwall... ...and there won't be any telephone... ...there won't be any means of communication... ...and that's it, they're sent on train... ...to Scotland, all by themselves...
0: That's, ...that's a bit... ...dark for me... But that's just the norm, isn't it? I mean, that's what happens in Harry Potter... and ...I mean, if you ever read Stephen Fry's... first autobiography, he describes... ...that whole process had been sent off to school... ...and he was on the train by himself, and what have you, so...
2: But going what we see in the subsequent ones... Those kinds of emotions, and I imagine they don't really play those emotions. I think it's all played, Yes, we're going off on holiday with our father, how marvellous. It was just because I read the script to get an idea of the story. and It's done for dramatic reasons. I don't know why they just didn't make Professor Wedgwood a widower. But they decided against it. So anyway, three children go and stay on an island in Scotland where rocket experiments are taking place. And the big experiment they are working on is to orbit the moon. It's a big deal, it's a lifetime's work for Professor Wedgwood. There are only certain times when this is possible, and the general feeling is, well if we don't do it, one of the other countries will, and they'll beat us to it. So we only have this moment, and wouldn't you know it, there's a mystery illness in the base. And I think Jeremy, you might be starting thinking of things like the moon base and the, the, all the and base under siege stories.
1: Doesn't the illness turn out to be leukemia or something?
2: Yes, they just drop that word very casually. Oh, yes, we all came into touch with some dangerous radiation. They get very sick because of plot reasons, plot radiation (laughs) to make things more exciting. But what happens is the pilot of the lunar mission falls ill, and it just so happens that before he fell ill, he showed Jimmy Wedgwood, the youngest child, all around the inside of the capsule. And this is how you operate it, so Jimmy takes it upon himself. To stow away.
1: And fly to the moon?
2: Yes. How old is he? Eleven? Something like that, yes. <laughs> right. They, they don't find out until after the rocket has taken off that it's Jimmy in there. So then it's the whole thing of getting him round the moon, getting him back.
0: Point of order, is it just Jimmy who's on the spacecraft? Or perhaps, does he have a little friend with him?
2: He does, he has Hamlet the hamster. Jimmy takes this voyage in his dressing gown. because it is mentioned that at one point hamlet floats out of jimmy's dressing ground pocket so he stuffs him back in his pocket and then stuffs a hanky in there to act as a cork to keep the hamster in this
1: sounds highly achievable in 1960 on television
2: (laughs) well i suppose zero gravity would be a new concept there's a bit i would dearly love to see where apparently he opens a carton of milk and the milk just floats out like a cube i think we now know what liquids do in zero gravity and they do not retain the shape of their original container.
0: Does it not depend on how long you've left the milk out in the sun for?
1: Well, it depends how much radiation's coming
0: through the capsule wall. Yeah, because plot radiation could do funny things with milk.
1: If it's bad for your white blood cells, what's it going to do for milk? Because that's white as well. Anyway, in the end they get Jimmy back and...
0: Oh, thanks for the spoiler.
1: The world finds out that the first person in space is an
2: 11-year-old boy. Thanks to the fact that they have a reporter staying with them, Conway Henderson, who conveniently had some aerospace experience in the war. And also, another bit that comes out a bit dark is like, Conway Henderson, I know that name. Weren't you involved in experimental remote-control aircraft? Yes, it was until one of them fell on Salford and killed two people. I would really love to see this, to see how they play certain beats. And Conway Henderson in Target Lunar is played by Frank Finlay, so I imagine he would have done some good haunting.
1: He, I think, would have elevated the material because there are performances later on that are being very charitable to the material. In fact, because of the Doctor Who connection, of course, Michael Craze plays the older brother of Jimmy Jeffrey. And Michael Craze would go on to be a Doctor Who companion five years later. Six years later, I should say.
2: I want to be fair to this. It is fairly disposable material for Sunday afternoon serial showing. And it's expressive of a mindset that I think vanished. There came a point when I realised there wasn't going to be a British space programme. And we weren't all going to be up there. Space was not the next Everest.
1: Now, given you mentioned that, and that Jimmy goes into space wearing his dressing gown and slippers. In Pathfinders to Space, they go into space wearing jumpers. And the feeling I got was that, oh, it's like we're going to the pole that it, f- it felt very much like this is just an extension of going to the North Pole, except it's further up. It's very much rooted in a past vision of Britain's achievements rather than moving forward into the future, I feel.
2: I need to be older to nail this. It's a really difficult one to pin down, just that whole post-war consensus world, and also the, the war's over. We haven't been annihilated newer, interesting technologies are going to come, and the Empire's gone, but the Commonwealth is still there, and we have a new young queen, and we'll be able to build Coventry Cathedral in space! That festival of Britain mindset.
1: bad enough we're building Coventry Cathedral in Coventry.
2: <laughs> this was wonderfully early to me, in its way. I just think, even if this had been done five years later, it would have been radically different. But I am curious, is this Sidney Newman's vision of non-Dalek Doctor Who there's the story about how annoyed he was by the creation of the Daleks and he wanted Doctor Who to be fairly educational and you have this thing throughout the Pathfinder series which is when anything happens somebody knows a fact about it. Everybody's got the same voice. Adult or child even often in the face of death they will then go on and describe oh we're about to crash into the lunar surface. Why?
1: That's 430 million miles away! <laughs> There's a terrible example of that in Pathfinders to Mars. I think it's at the end of episode four, where they're being attacked by giant lichens. Uh, someone says, oh, they must be after the water. And as Conway Henderson is being smothered by giant spinach, he says, oh, but we're 60% water. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the big cliffhanger ending. And <laughs> yeah, I, I see the point that the, they're trying to convey this to the viewer, but it's so hand-fisted. It's At times it just feels like It's a schools program that's added on an adventure narrative to keep the young viewers interested, but they don't realize quite how patronizing that is. I did find the series really patronizing to younger viewers. Like You mentioned about the characters and how they all speak with the same voice. There is no differentiation of the different characters. They don't really have any depth either. They're all very boring people to the point where at one point hamlet gets upgraded to being a guinea pig between series apparently because it was just bigger and easier to see and they find a giant space flower and they put hamlet inside it on the grounds that it looks like a lettuce and he'll like to eat it and then the whole thing closes up like a venus flytrap and jeffrey says oh look at that as presumably the flesh is being stripped from hamlet's bones and he's dying in agony. That's, it
2: closes so slowly, they've got plenty of time to say that doesn't look good and pull him out. But What's, what's really
1: impressive is that Hamlet seems entirely unconcerned.
0: Hamlet does <laughs> seem unconcerned for uh, this whole canon. I'd
1: swear they? he's been drugged, because guinea pigs are terrified of everything. But this one is so docile, someone's been putting Mogadon in his feed or something.
2: Well, presumably when they called the agency, <laughs> they said, send us the most relaxed guinea pig you have. Probably quite used to being under the lights. Probably done a couple of Blackpool Big Nights and armchair theatres. I was just going to say armchair (laughs) theatres. Actually, now here's another name we need to bring into it, Malcolm Hulk.
1: Yeah, who would go on, of course, to be one of the main writers of Doctor Who at at the end of the 60s and for the whole of John Pertwee's term in the early 70s. And this is actually, the series is co-written with Eric Pace, his then writing partner. And the only reason I recognised his name is because he shares it with the villain in Jack's Return Home, the book on which the film Get Carter is based. And given that Pace and Ted Lewis, the author of Jack's Return Home, were contemporaries and TV <laughs> scriptwriters, it's tempting to think that maybe Malcolm Hulk's collaborator did in fact have eyes like piss holes in the snow.
2: <laughs> but as we're talking about how patronising this is, It would be tempting to think, oh, this is terribly establishment, this is terribly reactionary, terribly conservative, and, of course, it's written by a great big commie. We need to do a thing about communists in British television, because, of course, Dixon of Doc Green, it was a co-creation when it was The Blue Lamp, but for television developed by Ted Willis, of course, he was a former communist and later a Labour peer, and if you ever see his show Sergeant Cork, it's all about a Victorian socialist policeman.
1: Well, Hulk was still a communist at the time, this was made. He stayed a communist for most of the 60s. In fact, his MI5 file has recently been released. But comparing this with his later Doctor Who work, it's really noticeable that he's writing for a more intelligent audience, or that he's assuming more intelligence on the part of his audience, because this is very simplistic. Whereas his Doctor Who scripts are generally very rich in subtext about anti-establishment, about the threat man poses to the natural world all kinds of political ideas which was deemed perfectly suitable for effectively the same audience although there is that distance of eight or nine years
2: i'm wondering how much it is the way it's made while sidney newman is important to the development of doctor who he wasn't the producer he is the producer of the pathfinders series as I say, then those weird moments in Target Luna, the mother who just can't wait to get shut of her kids and people being killed in experimental aircraft things. I'm just wondering how much as some of that subtext might have been there. Hulk and Pace might have been happy to put it in, but it's all smothered in the crib. By No, come on. This is didactic television for kids who need to learn how to be new Elizabethan, new internationalists, all ready to conquer space on behalf of the Commonwealth.
0: Do you remember me saying before Tilt, when we were talking about Doctor Who, I raised this controversial question, is Doctor Who a kid's show? And I think that you said, no, it's not. It's a family show. It's family entertainment.
2: It is if you're trying to annoy a Doctor Who fan. (laughs) I know it's below the belt, but some of them really do have it coming.
0: So would you say then that this is like Doctor Who, if Doctor Who had been going out as a children's BBC production and then... By the time it gets to Doctor Who, then it's into sort of it's Saturday early evening, but more sort of inclusive for all the family.
2: I think this is partially Doctor Who as Sydney Newman envisaged it. Look over there; it's something we can talk about.
1: Yeah, it's very much the blueprint, but it's it feels more like a first draft. So this is what Sidney Newman thinks it looks like, and then you pass it to the original Doctor Who production team, and they give it more character, they give it more depth, they give it more pace. The result is something that's actually good, whereas this is a children's programme and not really a family programme.
0: Okay, well, let's have a look at the first one that we could watch, the first one that's on the The DVD. first one is
2: way too busy. Come on, just, just read out all the cast members.
0: Well, I can't because I don't think that my browser can scroll for that long. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so this is Pathfinders in Space. It's 1960 again. And we've got a lot of people, haven't we? Because we've got your man, your Professor Wedgwood, Dr O'Connell, the Wedgwood siblings, and we've got Conway Henderson, Gerald Flood, and we've also got all the people in the, what is it called, the Barnyard Space Centre, or whatever it is? What's it called?
2: Bucking Island.
0: That's it. Yes, I knew it was something filthy. And, okay, so you've got all of them, and you've got a security guard who won't let anybody in, and he should have been played by Michael Ripper, I reckon, No, wasn't. just
2: the people who go to the moon. That's really what interests me. There's too many people going to the moon.
0: Well, like, as in the song, everyone's gone to the moon.
2: Uh, uh, the, the, the song doesn't go far enough. Everyone and everyone's friends have gone to the moon and some of their kids. I quite enjoyed
0: this one, because... I sort of liked the fact that it was sort of procedural and explaining what they were doing on the spacecraft and all this kind of stuff, and they're going to go off to the moon and faff about, and yeah, I found it quite enjoyable. I mean, it's undemanding, but what the heck?
1: I found it very demanding. (laughs) I found it was demanding a lot of my patience. It's just that the the pace of it is so slow. I've seen Quatermass, which predates this, and I've seen... Doctor Who which follows it by only a few years and the difference is so marked in terms of stop explaining everything to each other you know they have a conversation on the phone and then someone hangs up and then he tells someone else exactly what they just said so everyone has the same conversation three times and there's a reason why this is seven episodes long it's because everyone keeps repeating everything to each other
2: it's interesting because it's made by ABC television Gary, back me up on this. ABC television was well, the modern, the thrusting, the cool station on the ITV network.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: This is the kind of thing people think rediffusion were making.
0: Yeah, in comparison to, like, you know, say, ATV, for example, very focused on traditional variety, given what they want, that kind of thing. Yeah, ABC's a bit more experimental.
1: Well, I suppose that's where the science fiction aspect comes from. I'm trying to make it feel very modern and contemporary. But the presentation itself feels very old hat.
2: I don't think what year Space Patrol was, the puppet series that was made for ABC.
1: I think that was 61.
2: It's less grounded in any kind of science fact, but that's much more whizzy and cheerful and
1: offbeat. More high energy, perhaps. Yes. This feels just very languid and slow and indolent.
2: Gary, I'm going to need a character breakdown then. So, Professor Wedgwood is everything you'd think of as a British scientist of that time, really, isn't he? He's tall, commanding, pipe-smoking. Does he take his pipe to space? No, I don't think he does. Why doesn't he? It seems like the kind of thing he'd look right to doing.
0: They should have shoved the hamster on his pipe and just smoked it. (laughs) Although I could, I could see that I could upset Everybody hates Hamlet. Everybody hates oh, no, Hamlet. I no, mean... nothing's called Hamlet, for goodness sake, So What do you expect? You say, oh, it was an accident for my cigar.
1: It's not that I have a problem with Hamlet. It's I have a problem with him being so ruthlessly incorporated into the story. There is no reason for him to go into space other than to give the simple-minded children the producers think are watching a cute little furry animal to look at.
0: Do you not think that everybody, all of the crew on that spaceship, and as you say, Tilt, there's a lot of them, do you not think they're all bloody tolerant of that hamster? Because they really are. You think there's going to be a point at which one of them just says, just leave the damn thing alone, for goodness sake.
1: They build a spacesuit for him several times.
0: No, actually, that's a good point, because I think you asked me at one point, Tilt, when we were watching this, are these spacesuits self-cleaning, or do they all just reek? (laughs) And we we don't have any evidence for being any kind of proper sanitary facilities on board. And sometimes they're, they're wandering around. Well, tell
2: me and... about Professor Meadows.
0: Professor Meadows? Well, he's yes. probably stinks for a start, yeah.
2: Professor Meadows is a woman.
0: Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, no, I've realised that.
2: unreconstructed troglodyte. I,
0: I hereby resign from something. So, okay, now I've got the cast list in front of me, thanks to the good people of IMDB. So, Professor Meadows, oh, she's an American, isn't she? Canadian. Can, oh, she? Oh, okay.
1: She had to be Canadian because Sidney Newman was Canadian.
0: Okay, there's a little bit of a hint, maybe early on, of a bit of love interest between herself and Conway Henderson. Do we ever find out what publication Conway Henderson writes for? Because it's obviously one that's got a lot of interest in the space race, to have somebody of his expertise.
2: at Target Luna, he is writing for a specific paper, but then at the end he just agrees to become the press officer for Bucking Island. But that's not still the case when Pathfinders begins, is it? No,
0: because he turns up and Michael Ripper or whoever, says to him, no, you're not coming in the air because you haven't got the credentials. You're just one of them hacks.
2: No, the reason I wanted to talk about Professor Meadows is, in the last two series, how many weeks does she spend in space? Many, Many months. She spends months in space, and her makeup looks fantastic. None of the guys grow beards or get long hair in their time in space. I mean, they spend weeks walking around a mountain on Venus.
0: Okay, Remember, okay. Remember where we are, nineteen sixty. Okay, Professor Meadows aside, they are British after all. You know, they've got backbone. They've got the stiff upper lip. So there's no possibility of there being beards or smudge makeup. This is Martin
2: like Bryce in space,
0: is it? Yes, exactly, exactly. They've got gumption. You know, they're going to stick it out, and then they'll come back. And I mean, all of them, every single one of them would have got the honours, wouldn't they, in the, in the New Year list. They all would have been to the palace. The well, that
1: that's assumes that none of them were Republicans.
0: Yeah, they don't really <laughs> delve into that area, do they? They never have that kind of discussion. Because that's the other thing, they never have any discussions about the mundane. Jeremy, have you ever seen Dark Star, the film?
1: I have, and in fact, John Carpenter is my favourite director.
0: I really like Dark Star, and I know somebody who has seen it and was absolutely bored stupid with it. I was saying you're sort of missing the point, because I think he was expecting it to be like some sort of exciting Star Wars type thing, and I'm saying, well, no, you've got the wrong end of the stick. And it would be nice to see like the people on Pathfinders actually slightly go that way, where they've gone beyond having conversations about any particular topic, not just space-related ones. They don't actually bother communicating with each other anymore. It's just like they're, they're so fed up with each other's company. They're just waiting for, like, somebody to accidentally open an airlock or something like that. And, I mean, that might be a bit dark for Sunday tea time, but that's the way they would have gone. They're all, they're no, all no, very, No, you, you've
2: got an idea in my head now. So the BBC is doing all these revivals for the 60th anniversary of sitcom, which, of course, is the 70th anniversary of sitcom, for God's sake. Justice for pin rights. But anyway, and they're bringing back up Pompeii and porridge and blah, blah, blah. And people saying, why does this need to happen? But you know what? I kind of would like to see ever-decreasing circles in
1: space. <laughs> but the, he would never be finished tidying up.
2: We haven't finished our character list. I need you to say a particular name on the character list. There's a, I think there's the beginnings of an idea.
0: In some sort of order, we've got Professor Wedgwood. So he's your man, the pipe. And then we've got Dr. O'Connell.
2: Right. Dr. O'Connell, the Irish doctor. For the most part, there's him and there's Murray. They're really surplus to requirements. But there's one bit, isn't there, where they're thinking of turning back. Doesn't O'Connell do some sort of dodgy, shifty bit of business to ensure that they keep going to the moon? Doesn't he fail to convey a message?
0: it sounds like something he would have got up to
2: there's the one moment where he gets obsessed with this idea that they are going to the moon and safety be damned and it's like right that's the germ somebody i'd like to think somewhere possibly see the newman said hang on a minute that's a way of doing dramatic tension in a way that might look less contrived the untrustworthy old idealist for dr o'connell though it's just like a A brief moment and he comes to his senses and goes back to being as boring as everybody else.
0: I never get this right. Frasier, isn't it? Yes?
2: Fraser.
0: Or whatever. No, he's John Laurie, and he's just, we're doomed, we're doomed. And eventually I thought he is the one, along with Hammy the Hamster, he's the one who's going to test the patience of the crew first. But it's not that kind of show. So everybody just
2: puts up with his... Anybody familiar with the radio series Journey Into Space?
1: My mother is because she mentioned it to me when I was telling her about recording this podcast, and she had very uh-huh. fun, she had very fun memories of it.
2: Because I listened to that many years ago, and it didn't quite develop the way I expected. Again, it's like it's Britain and the Commonwealth are going to be there first. Uh, it's a British rocket, but it takes off from Australia, and I thought well, it's going to be fairly Dan Dare stuff, and it goes off in a strange, not necessarily metaphysical, but a very strange little philosophical direction. And this does the same thing. I thought they were either going to go to the moon and there'd be some... Something would attack them that they could fight back, or they'd just go to the moon and it would be jolly interesting and they'd bring back some moon rock and maybe the elements would be against them. But it then goes off into an anti-war parable. That feels more like something Malcolm Hulk would have written.
1: Except it wasn't. It was Charles Chilton, who then produced The Goon Show.
2: That just came sideways at me, and it made me feel better about the whole serial. There was like, just hang on a minute, let's, let's just stop here. This is the white heat of technology. I know that phrase hadn't been coined yet, but this is where it's all going. But where actually are we going? What are the origins of life on Earth?
0: Isn't it that kind of bullshit talk that ends up with Britain not landing on the moon? Because if we pause and think about it, before you know it, hey, look, the Americans have gotten ahead of us.
1: Well, they, we don't to really spoil it. We would not open a harvester there or something.
0: Well, I mean, you would have thought that once the Americans got there, they would have had Moon Disney by now. At least.
1: Disneyland Moon.
2: Oh, pfft. Tomorrowland is a dump, so don't talk to me about it. I know they're building a separate Star Wars land, but they'd already turned Tomorrowland into partially Star Wars land and partially not as clean as looking everywhere else in Disneyland. But don't get me started on that topic. I'm sure somebody has something to say about Pathfinders.
1: Music is so important, I think, in, um, in creating mood and atmosphere. And one of the issues with the whole Pathfinder series is they have about three pieces of stock music that they just use over and over and over <laughs> again. It's really odd that they should do that because it's all stock music. It can't cost them that much, surely, just to use something else this week.
0: Is it not because they don't have a PRS license on the moon? Because it's also
2: distracting because one of the pieces they used was used in the last episode of The Prisoner. So I'm meant to be thinking about space and I'm thinking about Leo no, McEarn spitting
0: at a rocket. I can't allow that through. I'm sorry, that's been rejected because it wasn't an issue for people in 1960.
2: Well, I'm not people in 1960 and my concerns need to be heard. And one of my concerns is we're not talking about the lost children of a doomed civilization which I think is an interesting little bit. The fact that they tell us about this nuclear war that the forgotten civilization of Earth had, and they tell us it through abandoned toys and these little Earth versions of kal who all get rocketed off to space in the search of a better
1: life. That I was quite surprised by, given how flat the story had been to that point. And I thought, oh, they found some aliens who lands on the moon before. No, they are actually from Earth, and they are from the lost continent of Mu, or somewhere. And then it turns into a, suddenly an anti-nuclear story. I thought, right, this we're is We're back Malcolm. to Quetamass, uh,
2: Quetamass in the Pit. And that, of course, life on Earth was seeded from Mars, but there's that whole thing of there was a civilization here before that destroyed itself through violence. We are the Martians, and we
1: dig Burt Whedon. And that then connects to Malcolm Hulks' possibly best doctor who script the silurians which is about a thriving civilization that existed on earth before man evolved when they all went into hibernation because of the moon because they thought the moon was going to smash into the earth and then they wake up again in the present day and they find man running around and they're not pleased
2: so for all that initially it's people just wandering around spouting scientific facts and flying to the moon in slacks and facing danger with even more facts At no point does anybody panic about the possibility of suffocating to death, and we haven't even mentioned... I mean, Wedgwood is mildly annoyed when he finds out that all of his children are in a rocket to the moon. If that doesn't make it, his seed is wiped from the earth. He (laughs) is annoyed about that. He does does actually let his irritation show. That is a quotation, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) But generally, everybody's very relaxed, no matter how awful... We, we also get to see Professor Wedgwood choose which one of his children gets to survive.
1: Yes, because only two people can make it back. Only one child and one adult can make it back. So they send back Valerie, because she's a girl and she doesn't breathe as much. I think Dr. O'Connell, because... I don't know, he remembered the most out of all of them. Or something. Was that why?
2: No, they sent it uh, Conway Henderson. because Because oh, right. he can
0: pilot. Yeah, and who gets to store away? The least valuable member of the crew, the bloody hamster <laughs> again. I think you a say bear. Jimmy.
1: Jimmy all the way through is nothing but a liability, and I think it's a sign you of see, things that, to come. Yeah, to... that's
2: why I can't accept this whole idea of eat Hamlet, eat Jimmy.
1: <laughs> There's more meat
2: on him. He is sapient, so he should know the trouble he causes.
1: I think you should eat Hamlet first, and then treat that as a warning. That Jimmy had better start pulling his weight and stop being such an annoying little toad and just basically keep his trap shut because he serves no purpose there other than stealing oxygen from the others.
0: Now, what kind of message would that send out to the audience? That space is harsh. But okay,
2: so the two children left behind, again, just take it on the chin. Yeah,
1: when everyone's basically resigned to suffocating in space, yeah, it's okay. I mean, you know, ho hum. Worst things happen at sea. Oh, no, they don't.
2: But it's it's interesting to compare with that the little beats about, you know, how do we find out about a horrible nuclear war? A child's lost teddy hoflumful, whatever that creature was. They play the teddy bear manoeuvre on us.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's such a stark contrast that that is it's clearly something that, that everyone cares about stating, but and everything else is just kind of, well, we need this so that the story can finish, and so that we can have a bit of tension here when we go into the ad break. Everything else just feels very mechanical and as if it's being produced to a recipe. And that's the bit that feels sincere. And I think sincerity is a very underrated quality.
0: Well, is there such a thing as sincerity anymore? Yes. Is, a of a, is there? Yes. What, in 2016? On the television?
1: Uh Yes, there is. I'm just trying to think of something that I've watched recently that might count. Oh, The Night Manager, the new John Le Carre adaptation which is about people acting against their own best interests to serve the greater good.
0: oh, right, well, I haven't seen it, but I'll let it through. Okay, so... I, okay, overall, I didn't mind Pathfinders in space. Okay, it's nice and frothy and silly and what have you, with its anti-nuclear message thrown in for good measure. It went on a little bit too long. Seven episodes is a bit much. You could sort of tighten it up. Maybe cut this down to four episodes, perhaps? Make a two-hour film out of it?
1: I think... That would have needed to be done at the script stage. All the Quatermass stories have been refashioned as films. It's just that the the original three were just completely remade from scratch, and the script's adapted. And in fact, there is a Doctor Who connection, because as well as re-editing Doctor Who stories as compilations for Christmas, a few years ago they tried re-editing some Peter Davison stories from 4 25-minute episodes down to an hour and 10 minutes. And uh, the result was... Pretty much unwatchable because the, the scenes are paced slowly, but they all happen very quickly. So the pace of the program doesn't match the speed at which everyone else is actually moving.
2: Should have got my wife to do it, she, she'd know what to do. Just cut out any shot with Anthony Ainley in it.
1: It wasn't even Anthony Ainley stories. It was. Oh, actually, no, it was. It was Planet of Fire, where every shot contains something that's on fire, which they've added digitally. <laughs> And there's a pre-credit sequence that appears to have be been shot in someone's garage that's supposed to be the inside of a spaceship. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen. It looks like Manos the Hands of Fate. It,
2: it's Planet of Fire, the last story with Chameleon.
1: Played by Gerald Flood. It all ties up. He's actually in the, the first of uh, the two, so he's actually in it in person. As King John. As Robot King John, I should say. That makes the story sound a lot more exciting. We don't than get to see is. him
2: pull his, mm, I'm so dishy face. What's the point of getting Gerald Flood if he's not going to do that? By that point, he
1: looked a lot more like um, King John from the Disney version of Robin Hood. So, Pathfinders to Mars,
2: I found the least rewarding of the three.
0: Now, this was an oddity, because we've discovered whilst we're watching this, that this actually went out over Christmas New Year, including on Christmas Day, and also, like, the last half of the episodes were were live? Is that right? Yes. Blimey. When you've Pathfinders and space life? No. So why did they stop doing this halfway through the second series?
2: I think even Andrew Pixley wouldn't be able to find the paperwork for that decision. There's only so many memos you can sift through at Teddington.
0: This is a fair point, yes. Okay, so what have we got as far as personnel changes are concerned?
2: They've stripped it down. They've at least learned that lesson. Do not send the entire polyphonic spree to Mars.
0: So we've got Professor Wedgwood, but ooh, my arm's broken so therefore he can't go. Instead, they've got... the. That is a
2: surprising decision that they actually bother to show Professor Wedgwood. Mm. Yes. Because they're so cavalier about certain things, they suddenly get really tight about continuity. We've alluded to the fact, we haven't outright stated the fact, that between Target Luna and Pathfinders in Space, every single part is recast, and there's only a gap of a few months between the two serials. I think one goes out in June and the other goes out in September.
0: So it's Back to the Future Part 2 and 3, isn't it?
2: Whereas between space and Mars, it's like, whoa, 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 we can't just have one line of dialogue that says Professor Wedgwood's not here. We have to see that arm get broken.
0: I was a bit disappointed, actually, when it was revealed that it was him, because at first it was just somebody in a space suit, and I thought, it's Foggy, and us on wine all over again. Yeah, Foggy's drunk, he's under the table. Oh, yeah, is, is that him? Well, he's turning away from the camera, so we can't quite see.
2: That should have been Jack Douglas walking backwards. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I remember that episode. (laughs) See, I don't know why they didn't just stick with that method from then on. i just say, like, this split-screen business that we've been experimenting with the last few years, ah, forget it. We're not going to top this. And from that moment on, it was never done again.
2: And one other lesson they've learned. So, yeah, we've stripped it down to the eldest Wedgwood child, Jeffrey Conway's niece. Is she called Margaret?
0: Margaret Henderson, that's right. Yes, we've got... Jeffrey, which he knows how to operate the radio, so he's of some use.
2: In Target Lunar and Pathfinders in space, there are a number of different things that lead to the decision of taking the children with them. By this point, it's like, oh, well, come on, Margaret, you might as well come along as well.
1: Yeah, they do have the, the argument that Jeffrey does actually have space experience now, even though there's probably other people who are more qualified, like any pilot.
2: I think after two successful, very dangerous missions, they've realised that you've got to take some kids with you. Conway Henderson suddenly decided it's Take Your Niece to Mars Day at <laughs> Bucking Island.
1: And presumably he doesn't bother contacting his brother to say, I'm taking your daughter into space. Maybe he, maybe he just doesn't hear about it until it's on the news.
0: His brother should be played by Patrick Cargill. <laughs> <laughs> and he's in Australia and he rings him up and he says, uh, hi, 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 brother. Uh, just to let you know, uh, Margaret's uh, in spit. What? 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 What is this? What is this? What is, what's going on? And yeah, then we, we eagerly await his reappearance, which never comes, unfortunately.
2: And Professor Meadows is also part of the official team. They've also got somebody visiting. Did he fly in from Australia? With no hint of an accent.
0: The barman from the early series of Man About the House. And yeah. It's bait and switch isn't it because when he arrives
2: hey, what Bernard Horsfall was oh, okay yeah, I, let, I think it was on... Dr Philip Martel from Top Saturday Night Mainstream Entertainment Enemy at the Door <laughs> I love that show You've heard us talk many times about the scheduling of Enemy at the
1: Door yes Yeah I've have n- never actually seen it I almost would it it's from depressing course. I'd love it, to it see needs It needs a trigger warning for everything I love the whole story about the German occupation of the Channel Islands so I'd love to see it And I thought, well, it has to be depressing. That's fine. I mean, I remember that when they first showed The Prisoner, it was on Sundays at quarter past seven, because that's the perfect time to show a weird, trippy spy series that's not suitable for anyone who hasn't been to a private school and has taken experimental materials. Bernard Horsfall is a very great Doctor Who alumnus, it should be said, because he's been in it four times, and he was one of the most important Time Lords twice And he played
0: Gulliver. And he's in that thing that you mentioned, isn't he? Tilt? but what's that thing called The Changes? Isn't that, isn't he? Oh yes, yes, he's
2: in the changes. Uh, and of course he's in Mr. Horatio Nibbles. Right, we need a Bernard Horsefall special. But anyway, there's a bit of a switcheroo. One lesson I think they've learned is right, if you're going to have peril, you can't have Jimmy making a mistake that leads to peril, so they actually go for full out malevolence. Oh
0: hang on a second, we need to because I can sense unease amongst the listening audience so we need to just nip us in the bud right now. Don't want everybody, because Jimmy's not there, but it's okay, because the bloody hamster is. The hamster's yeah. still there. The hamster will not die.
1: Well, he is a guinea pig now, but Bernard Horsfall doesn't make it into space, because they don't make spacesuits big enough for him, because he's, because he's real tall. But instead, someone takes his place, and he doesn't look anything like him, and Buck and Ellen doesn't have a photograph of Professor Hawkins or anyone who's ever met him or knows what he looks like. So he goes straight through the gate, right to the rocket, and then inside without anyone checking. And then it takes off with some guy aboard.
2: I think if you're allowing 11-year-olds to be the first people in space, those kinds of lapses are not going to be that surprising.
1: It just seems like a very disorganised operation. How many
2: times during the making of Pathfinders to Mars do you think George Coloris looked around and thought, I was in
1: Citizen Kane? I think he did it every time he wasn't on camera.
0: I would have preferred Harcourt Brown to be played by Bob Todd. (laughs) But I can see that that might have been a controversial decision.
1: I think George Kaloris is actually very, very good. I think he delivers the best performance in the entire three-series run because he's really making an effort to make Harcourt Brown seem like a human being, even though he's a bizarre caricature.
2: Right, hang on a minute, I'm just going to... There goes the bell. Ian Hepburn, are you listening? Ian and I had a little Twitter conversation. Ian recently re-watched the Doctor Who story, The Rescue. In fact, I think it might have been the first time he'd ever got around to seeing it. And I mentioned the fact that when Vicky joins, when Maureen O'Brien joins the cast, something happens to William Hartnell. He gets giddier. It's one of the things we talked about in The Romans. That if Patrick Troughton had replaced William Hartnell a year earlier, there wouldn't have been that much of a night and day change. Because Series 2, William Hartnell is a very giddy, chuckling, hyperactive, anarchic character. And Ian said, yes, he becomes the Doctor. But who is William Hartnell playing then before he really becomes the Doctor in Doctor Who? He is not the first Doctor, he's the second Harcourt Brown. As part of our preparations for this Gary and I watched the first episode of Doctor Who on An Earthly Child, and the first episode of the first Dalek story, The Dead Planet. And I mean, there's that thing of, I saw a city, I want to go to the city, I am going to sabotage our technology, risking all of our lives just so I can go to the city because I am an untrustworthy old man.
1: The difference, though, is that the Doctor later expresses genuine remorse for what he's done and for getting everyone in trouble, and for putting everyone's lives in jeopardy. Oh, this Whereas Harcourt differences Brown,
2: between the characters, but Harcourt
1: Brown is the seeds of the First Doctor. Harcourt Brown repeatedly tries to murder all the other characters in the programme, and repeatedly gets away with it, and everyone else just chuckles. Oh, Harcourt, you're such a crazy psychopath. Here, <laughs> hold this oxygen tube, and don't hold it too tightly, because I'm going to be outside.
2: We have... Conway Henderson being the slightly big brotherish. hmm I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite handsome as well. We have the back-combed maternal type. Susan, I think, is somebody we can't find in any of these. There isn't really any Susan type. There are children, there are young people, but none of them... There's none of her characteristics, and, and Harcourt Brown is a prototypical doctor. But yes, they, they should have left him behind on Mars...
1: They should have pushed him out of the airlock the first chance they got, because it's clear straight from the off that he's a huge liability.
2: Because the other thing is um, Lost in Space. But that didn't start till 65, didn't it? Exactly. Are we dealing with some archetype from before even Pathfinders that we're not aware of?
1: Well, the obvious antecedent to all this kind of story is Jules Verne. So is there anything in From the Earth to the Moon or 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or anything like that where there is... I suppose there's a Captain Nemo. Well, actually, the character of the Doctor is in charge, though. That's yeah. Well, Captain Nemo is a direct antecedent of the original version of the Doctor because he's got the incredible machine and kidnaps people. Um, But that's not necessarily a connection with Harcourt Brown. So I think it's maybe it's just you know we need to have a villainous. We've got the good guys here, and they're in the situation. But we need to have a villainous character, and it's easier if we have the same guy every week.
2: It's just interesting that he, the villainous character is the oldest character and he sabotages a space mission resulting in the characters lost in space. I've just been watching the first three episodes and I, I guess we could just chalk it down to coincidence, but it's, it's a heck of a coincidence.
1: Well, we don't get anything that similar in, say, Star Trek. I think that's maybe because Star, <laughs> star... <laughs> That's Star Trek's loss. I think they needed an arch-old ham... <laughs> They did have a ham. He was sitting in the captain's chair.
0: <laughs> okay, right, recasting suggestion. Harcot Brown, played by William Hartnell, as he was in the Romans, the giddy doctor. <laughs> Getting dangerously close to, like, pantomime villain in this. And it's like, you know, I think he could actually look straight in the lens and sort of wink and say, yeah, you've twigged, I'm not no good. I, don't know.
1: I think that might have come into conflict with the... Um pretense that the show is still supposed to be educational. <laughs> Not that the Romans is rigorously based on fact.
2: So that's the thing, they land on Mars due to sabotage and Harcourt Brand's belief that they'll find civilizations and people to talk to. But Mars is just plant life
1: that attacks people and
2: then, oh, that's enough rain. Oh.
1: Yeah, and then it gets windy and the plants die. Episode four is actually called Lichens! <laughs> <laughs> Exclamation mark isn't there a caption at the end of episode 3 saying next week, lichens yes, yes there is uh, I think I'll watch Muffin the Mule
2: they're trapped on Mars they need to go get some water and then they get some water and then they go back And uh, I can't really give you a plot description they land on Mars they walk around a bit, they walk back and they find inflatable lichens
1: it's just yeah, it's, I've written down here just lack of suspense there's just not enough
0: happening And the people it's happening to aren't interesting. Ultimately, it's unrewarding, but you never know what Harcourt Brown's up to.
2: My entire notes for the series, Minister of Science, question mark, round and more contrived than the moon, and that's all I have to say. But Gary, you liked this better than Venus, didn't you?
0: I did, yes, I did. I mean, I'll I'll come to Venus in a second, but I think this would have been a lot worse if you didn't have Harcourt Brown in it. If it was just themselves, and everybody was on the same page, and there was no malevolent figure and they just found the inflatables and then they didn't and then they went back. And that was fine.
2: I've got a brilliant idea, right? Instead of replacing Bernard Horsfall, Harcourt Brown replaces Hamlet. So you, you have George Coloris in like an amusement <laughs> park guinea pig outfit and nobody seems to notice including the fact that for some reason Hamlet can now talk.
0: Right. An idea comes to mind and I think it's probably going to be the Bernard Horsfall connection. So Hamlet has turned from being a hamster into a guinea pig into a rabbit.
2: An invisible rabbit? Aha! Uh-huh. With and a zip up the back of his head?
0: Exactly! And then Harcourt Brown takes his place and they have to believe in Harcourt Brown if they're going to see him. And of course they will have to believe in him because if they can't see him, they can't see what he's up to. So like a malicious Horatio Nibbles, in other words. Although yes, I actually got a bit of a nasty streak. Anyway, so it's not all that much of a leap, is it?
2: I'm just thinking of the line, how could I have sabotaged our control panel? I am simply a guinea
1: pig! <laughs> I was chewing through one of the cables, it was delicious. I was a bit disappointed that Hamlet didn't change species between each series.
0: <laughs> By the last of this series, he's an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not as docile as his predecessor, so he just runs rampaging through the sets. <laughs> well, they managed
1: to get an elephant in Doctor Who in 1966.
0: Was it the same one that had gone running at the Blue Peter Studio <laughs> minutes away? No,
1: no, it's a big one. It's a proper elephant, not one they of They kind little... of play
2: a joke on the viewer with it, really. Look over there. Oh yeah, stock footage of an elephant. Oh my god, it's not stock footage of an elephant that just walked into the shot. No, if you want an ABC-related I think it's Teddington. Mystery and Imagination. There was an adaptation. I don't know if it was Fall of the House of Usher. One of the horror stories in Mystery of Imagination they got some rats and Released them onto the set to wander around, and I believe the rats actually managed to get into some shots they weren't meant to be in. At the end of it, they collected all the rats together,
1: and it's like, okay, those are the fourteen rats. It's like, hang on a minute, we only brought a dozen. Well, speaking of things that weren't supposed to be in shot, actually, we're jumping. Oh, that would be jumping forward to Venus
0: a bit. I was saying, well, we're going there anyway, aren't we, sir?
1: We're going there right now, and I
2: think. Maybe even from episode one of Pathfinders, I was saying, Gary, when we get to it, you are going to see the best booming shot. <laughs> Keep your eyes peeled. You might
0: Actually, you did somehow manage to miss it, didn't you, Gary? I did, actually, yes. I looked away at the crucial moment.
2: There are two. There are two, though. There's only one that nearly hits George Colorus in the face. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hang on a minute. and we missed something. Which was the episode in which series where you see the camera?
2: Oh, there's a couple of times in Pathfinders in Space where you get the feeling somebody somewhere decided, okay, that's the scene over. The vision mix is slightly too slow and you get a nice shot of an ABC camera. There's actually a better camera shot in an episode of The Avengers. A door that should be shut swings open and you just see, bold as brass, a camera sliding past to get to its next mark. There is a bit on Venus when you can see Conway Henderson and Professor Meadows moving to their next bit and you see them in Margaret and Jeffrey are standing on the surface of Venus pondering when Conway and Professor Meadows are going to join them, and you can see them wandering in the background. I think with their heads down, like, <laughs> maybe they can keep out of shot if they keep their heads down.
0: So, I've got to be honest and say that this was the one that I least enjoyed. And I don't know why, it was just as soon as a twig that was going to be like, sort of cavemen running around doing stuff, it was like, oh, there's going to be just like others there. There's going to be too many people there. Because, okay, in and, and Pathfinder's in space, you've got a lot of people involved, but they're not all in the damn capsule. So some of them are at Bucky Island. Whereas in this, it was like, oh, right, here we go. Okay, Captain Caveman's going to turn up. How many of them is there going to be? And I'm just going to run around and faff and what have you.
2: The Caveman element is interesting because this is where the realism has snapped. As much as right, Pathfinders in space... It's about the moon, there's a lot of factual stuff about the moon, and then at the end we have an element of fantasy, but it is applicable to the reality of 1960. It's about nuclear war. Mars, it's speculation about what Mars would be like. In fact, Hulk and Pace did get letters about surely it wouldn't rain on Mars, and they said "Well, if there's water on Mars, maybe there can be evaporation, maybe there can be rain on Mars. They tried to have everything explicable verisimilitude rather than realism Uh, but by this point it's just like anything short of little green men apparently you can get away with but yes Venus has Cro-Magnon men on it and stock footage of dinosaurs from Hungary there wasn't people working away busily in Didsbury at ABC Studios because that's where this series was shot No, those are not ABC dinosaurs those are bought in stock footage Hungarian dinosaurs
1: that's the EU for you, isn't it? Coming over here, doing the job of British dinosaurs.
0: Well, it was probably a good Wilchester on our part, isn't it? Because we're trying to get into the EC at that so time. So the thing I
1: haven't explained
2: about Venus is they end up on Venus. Uh, they take a detour to Venus on the way of coming back from Mars because they get a distress signal in space. From someone who's not Canadian? Yes. Do you think that's a coincidence that his space outfit looks like Flash Gordon's? With this big black collar? Yeah.
1: Because, it, because the whole series turns into Flash Gordon once they land on Venus, because it's a land of crazy cave people and, and monsters and endless treks across a barren landscapes of sand and mountains and big eggs. It become... I was
2: thinking it looked like Flash Gordon not to take part in it, but to be a criticism of an American version of space. Going, Look, at typical American. Sorry, I should explain. The Pathfinder's crew answer a distress call from an American astronaut who's stranded in orbit around Venus. It turns out he has a secret mission to leave a fag packet wherever he lands.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He's trying to kill off the uh, native Venusians by introducing tobacco.
2: I think that he was employed by Philip Morris, the tobacco merchant, not the lost episode finder. (laughs) I think it was like, yeah, get there, get him hooked on cigs, and then it'll open up an entire new market. You know, Now we've got this Cuban embargo going.
0: (laughs) I was quite disappointed they didn't identify the brand in a close-up that lingered for about maybe 15 seconds. What's your brand, Captain Wilson? Oh, I, I, I smoke Lucky Strike. And then just moves it towards the lens and lets it linger.
2: 1960, of course, that's the year of uh, Strand.
1: Oh, you're always alone with the Strand.
2: But the Pathfinders certainly aren't alone because they have a girl from Venus with them called Kiki. Sorry, I was trying to do a Pebble Mill-style link. It's not really happening. Why is Kiki blacked up? Because it's Britain in 1960 and that kind of thing reveals certain elements of colonialist thinking, I think. At one point we we're trying to work out whether it was meant to be ash from the volcano, and it's like it's not ash from the volcano, is it? They've just
1: They've just blacked up a child.:
2: On their photo test of uh, back to Doctor. Who? Uh, Louise Jameson as Leela, where she's been similarly treated?
1: Yeah, she's basically blacked up, and they realized that it wasn't a good idea. Because it was 1977 by then. And also her eyes were the wrong colour. So they made her wear contacts for the first six months in the job. And they had to write in a reason why her eyes changed colour. So that she didn't have to wear them anymore.
0: So why does Venus have to be eight episodes? Because I think that's part of the issue that I've got with this. Is that it, it was so
2: long. The thing is, is that these are not necessarily artistic decisions. It could well be that it's a situation where they've got the Sunday... They, they tended to alternate the Sunday afternoon serials, ABC, then ATV, and it could almost be that it's like ATV are not going to be ready in
1: time. Mac Love, can you write us another two? Because there's so much extra room. I mean, the, the trek around the mountain takes an episode and a half. They could have just pushed one of the rocks aside in the tunnel, gone back the way they came, and that's a week and a half done.
2: I was expecting more criticism of the American character. There is a thing, he's doing a secret mission, but that turns out to be relatively benign.
0: It's a tail star, isn't it?
2: Yes, but there is a bit where they find diamonds on Venus and he goes crazy.
1: Yeah, they're just lying around as well. Venus not only has diamonds, but it also has uranium, so they can get leukaemia again. There's a story in here,
2: isn't there? There's a story they're wanting to tell about colonisation. And interestingly, the anti-colonial character is Harcourt Brown.
1: He's almost a terrorist anti-colonialist because he's trying to blow up the rocket so that no one can leave rather than what actually eventually happens which is him staying behind to protect this new eden and presumably dying horribly several days later
2: well he thinks he's going to live for 800 years because he doesn't seem to understand the difference between a calendar day and an actual day of your life
1: (laughs) does he claim to be a scientist because i've known priests who are better scientists or toddlers who have a greater understanding of how physics works. Harcourt Brown is not only a murderous psychopath, he is a huge liability in scientific terms. He does not know how time works. A year on Venus actually lasts 300 years, but it'll only be a year for you because that's how long you live. So he thinks that he's going to live another 600 years. He isn't. Also, they get all the details about the spin of Venus wrong because the day on Venus is actually only 116 days and not 30. And they, um, the planet spins the wrong way as well.
2: So he's going to euthan. <laughs> yeah, he's going to get younger and That's younger. That's how time
1: travel works for Superman. It's... <laughs> <laughs> but And he's also going to euthan at three and a half times the speed that he thinks he is. So he's actually going to turn into just a zygote by the time they reach Earth. Maybe he can climb into one of the big eggs they find and then maybe hatch out. As... He didn't think this through, did he? <laughs> no! I mean, it's almost as if he has no scientific training of any kind.
0: One might think that he's just some crank author has written a dopey book that was probably vanity published in the first place. And...
1: Well, it was in hardback, in all fairness. And he's got a last name for a first name, so he's probably rich.
0: That's true. Yeah, because yeah, he'd need to be, wouldn't he? He'd need to be a man of self-sufficiency to go on these ridiculous larks with his telescope. We've got a little bit of a soap opera developing here, haven't we? Because we've got Conway and Mary. You know, there's a bit of a love interest going on in the second story. Uh, And yet they've been really sort of coy about it. It's just like sort of hinted about. Whereas there's one bit in this where I thought they were going to start getting down to it. Educational. (laughs) So is this suddenly on the school's curriculum?
1: Yeah, we've done physics and uh, chemistry now. We're going to do biology.
2: <laughs> but that's Canadian biology. It's different. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's much more passive.
0: What's all that business about the episode which has supposedly got deliberate mistakes in it? Which uh, uh, is not the episode with a boom mic.
1: There is a boom mic in that episode. Is there? Yeah. What, the one that
0: nearly whacks him in the face?
1: No, that's in episode four. There's what The one with the mistakes is The Valley of Monsters episode seven. That has another boom mic in it. All right, okay. But that's the one with the mistakes.
2: Yes, we've been talking about mistakes throughout this. It's worth pointing out one particular episode of Pathfinders in Space. A caption comes up at the end and says, there were a number of mistakes in this episode that were part of a program in association with some place of great learning. There was a study commissioned, and groups of children were brought in to ABC, and they were, told, they were shown a camera, and they were shown around the studio, and then they were told, you can watch... The next episode of Pathfinders to Venus a day early and of course there were people behind a one-way mirror watching their reactions and their reactions were noted and part of it was how much attention do children pay to television? How much are they going to notice flaws in production, flaws in scripting? I suppose it was a way of you can then take it and argue so that if budgets are being cut too much, if people are telling you to cut corners, there was a study, the kids will notice. Don't come to me with Joe Public doesn't clock a damn thing.
1: But the study wound up maybe not showing the results that they wanted, from what I gather. What results
2: did they? I know Sidney Newman was bothered, wasn't he, by the fact that the kids looked at the dinosaurs, oh, it's a model. And the teenagers were not interested at all.
1: Yeah, it kind of bears out my own thinking that the whole series was talking down to its audience. And as a result, they were bored and disinterested. And it's something that I think is relevant today. That, particularly with the closure of BBC Three, that younger viewers aren't that interested in programming that's about people their age. They're more interested in their peer group. That the kids who they think this program is aimed at wouldn't in you know, the next couple of years they'd be watching Emergency Ward Ten and Z Cars. They wouldn't necessarily be watching Four Feather For Falls.
2: Gary, are you okay with us occasionally revisiting? television fantasy things aimed at the younger set
0: i have no problem with that in theory
2: the son of abc thames television also did a study about what children watch and one of the things they found was that the children when they talked about the shows they watched talked about shows that were ostensibly aimed at adults we're talking about things like department s they didn't name children shows immediately and so when it came to making the show ace of wands The Three Principles, they're all meant to be young-ish, but none of them are children, and that was the thinking. They were almost trying to sell this to the children under the disguise of this being a grown-up show. So that's something to go on the list. Sometime in the next few months, Jeremy, would you care to come back with us and watch Superman 3?
1: Well, I'd love to. On my own show, Cinema Limbo, available now on the Poddance Network, I watched Superman 4, which I found extremely entertaining and full of educational content. So yes, I'd love to watch Superman 3 again.
2: Superman 3 partially just because, I mean, Superman 4 of course has Jim Broadbent and Stanley Labore. As the axis of evil. And Philip Fox, the pilot, Baldrick, yes. But yeah, Superman 3, it has John Bluthall, Graham Stark, Gordon Rawlings, Pamela Stevenson. I'm missing somebody out. We feel there's a lot of crossover potential and I keep talking to Gary about, you have to watch Superman 3. It's the Superman film I think you'd like best.
0: Well, we have, Jeremy, we've discovered the existence of what claims to be an extended cut from an airing on Yorkshire TV in 1985, I think it is. So, yeah, we might go with that one. And maybe, maybe that one's got Derek Geyler in it. I don't know.
1: It seems to have the entire cast of the running, jumping, standing still film, except for Spike Milligan and Leo McKern. So maybe we get Leo McKern as the moon, and uh, Milligan, as he's the voice of the computer at the end.
0: So w- what's everybody's overall view of Pathfinder then? Jeremy, yourself first.
1: I will say that in context, it's very important as a stepping stone in television history. It is that link between Quatermass and Doctor Who, and it shows what was going through Sidney Newman's mind when he was first formulating Doctor Who. So it's definitely earned its position in TV history. As a piece of television in its own right, it is all too often almost unwatchably boring. And it has dated horrifically. My copy's going in the river.
2: Tilt. Any time it fails to be entertaining, it's historically interesting. Any time it fails to be historically interesting, there's a boom in shot.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think it probably would have benefited from an appearance from and Bernie Winters. I'm not really sure why, or where, or how. But yeah, I thought it was alright. It'll be right. first
2: time for everything, isn't
0: it? Uh, hey, But I thought that it was good fun. It was Lark's, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm coming at it from the point of view of somebody who's still not particularly up on Doctor Who, so I couldn't really do the sort of comparisons and what have you. But yeah, it was fine. It was fine. Uh, I think probably every story could have done with being a little bit shorter, especially the last one. Yeah, no, it, it does seem, though, that when they do get back to Earth and they get their gongs, then the one constant through all of these stories, including the one that we haven't seen right at the outset, is Hammy the Hamster. So presumably he's going to get a knighthood. Or a lettuce. (laughs) (laughs) And he'll become head of NASA or something.
2: One less mention of Doctor Who. There is a Doctor Who story called The Keys of Marinus. And there is a bit with George Coloris and I did so want George Coloris to look at them and say, oh, I see, it's people travelling new frontiers and there's an untrustworthy old man, and grab Hartnell by the lapels
1: and, give me my job back! I was in Citizen Kane, you know!
0: <laughs> you told me something, till about how George Coloris on his days off went wandering around Manchester.
2: Yeah, the, the last series was shot at ABC's Didsbury Studios, just like Pathfinders in Space, the one in the middle was shot at Teddington. If we just going down to naming studios, Target Luna was shot at Alpha Studios in Birmingham. So the whole of ABC's property list was covered by this saga. But yes, the last one, so shot in Datesbury, George Caloris, who grew up in Manchester, spent time looking for places he remembered from his childhood and finding that many of them weren't there anymore.
0: Now, obviously, you know how to get in touch with us by now. You can find us at Jaffa's for Proust on Twitter, and you can email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com because of course we're also on the sitcom club has been one of them recently you'll find all of the podcasts even the jukebox shows at com, which is also where you'll find cinema limbo jeremy what have you been recently talking about on the limboids and what's coming up
1: well we've recently been enjoying the vhs classic biggles adventures in time one of my personal favourite movies. We've had a review of the year in which I have too much caffeine and review 50 films in a little over an hour. And coming up, we've got The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Terry Gilliam's classic fantasy smash flop, and the little scene, but incredibly weird and interesting, The Keep. Michael Mann's one stab at horror, which is almost completely incoherent, but looks great.
0: Well, this all sounds good fun. Of course, you can find all this at podnos.com. How do people find you on Twitter?
1: I am at cinema underscore limbo and I'm also there in person at j underscore j underscore phillips with two L's.
0: Fabulous. Well, thank you very much indeed, Jeremy, for joining us in this clash of podcasting universities. And in the meantime, on behalf of yourself, Jeremy.
1: Well, thanks very much for having me and uh, I'll hear from you again soon through the magic of the internet.
0: Tilt.
2: Goodbye, I wasn't in Citizen Kane.
1: When you're ready to make Citizen Kane 2 Rosebud's Revenge, I will be there. Citizen Kane 2000.
0: <laughs> In the meantime, thank you very much indeed for listening, and we'll be back with you very soon on our all-new Cakes for Proust.